Welcome to Repro's Fight Back, a podcast on all things repro. I'm your host, Jenny Wetter, and each episode I will be taking you to the front lines of the escalating fight over our sexual and reproductive health and rights at home and abroad. Each episode I will be speaking with leaders who are fighting to protect our reproductive health and rights to ensure that no one's reproductive health depends on where they live. It's time for Repro's to Fight Back. Welcome to Repro's Fight Back. This week's episode comes up one week after the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade has been under assault across the U.S. with over 401 new abortion restrictions having passed since January of 2011. So this week, we're going to talk about one of those bans that we've been seeing spreading across the U.S., and it is even passed in the House of Representatives, 20-week abortion bans. So joining me this week to talk about 20-week abortion bans, I'm really excited to have Dr. Jamila Parrott, an OBGYN and fellow with Physicians for Reproductive Health. Welcome, Dr. Parrott, and thanks for joining me. Um, Do you first want to maybe just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure. So I am a board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist, and um, following my residency in OBGYN, I did subspecialty training in family planning. And what that means is that I focused um, my women's health training really on dealing with reproductive health specifically. And that includes things like contraception and abortion. So let's start a little bit now and talking about what exactly is a 20-week abortion ban. The most important thing to know about the 20-week abortion ban really is that it's, it's an arbitrary, unnecessary ban on a really safe medical procedure. And so what we've seen, and you mentioned a little bit about the assaults that have been, that have been happening legislatively uh, around the country, and this is just one more assault. And so what's happening is that we see arbitrary uh, gestational age limits being placed, and whether it's six weeks or 12 weeks or 20 weeks, uh, the point is really to limit the ability for women to access the care that they need. So it's really just another way of trying to test the court to push back on Roe v. Wade. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that what politicians know at this point is that the public really is overwhelmingly in favor of maintaining access to abortion uh, for lots of different different reasons. And so there's not a lot of political capital uh, to be gained by trying to go after Roe directly. And so these arbitrary bans, these gestational age bans, are another way to get around it, right? And so limiting when individuals can go and get the care that they need without saying explicitly that they're trying to overturn Roe versus Wade. So we've heard a number of different possible justifications being thrown out there. Maybe we want to talk a little bit about what are some of the reasons that uh, proponents of 20-week bans are giving to say they support these bans. The number one and most uh, egregious reason is the argument that it improves the health of the women that I take care of, right? So safety concerns. Mm -hmm. But the science shows and the evidence shows and those of us who provide care uh, every day know that abortion at whatever the gestational age is one of the safest medical procedures that a woman can have. So just like the other laws that are aimed at restricting access to care, which we call trap laws, right, targeted restriction of abortion providers, Mm -hmm. laws that limit things like uh, the size of the hallways and mandate that 
facilities that re- that perform abortions do so um, in compliance as if they were a surgical center or a hospital. These gestational age bands are the same thing, right? And so they are designed to limit access to care. And so the argument for those other laws was that, well, we're trying to make it safer for the women that we take care of. And the same thing with these gestational age bands. And we know that this is just not the case at all. And for those who are really interested in helping um, individuals who need abortions be safe and making care safer for women, they really should be focusing on things like improving prenatal care and making sure that people have access to the insurance coverage that they need, making sure that women are able to get the providers that they get to the providers they need to get to when they do. Yeah, I feel like uh, the 20 ban along with trap laws are kind of designed to sound innocuous and sound like you said, they're trying to protect women's health or that they're good things. I mean, mm-hmm. absolutely, 20 weeks, right? Like that's plenty of time. And so people don't necessarily think about what that means for the woman or just in terms of what's going on in people's lives or what could come around and influencing that decision. Definitely. And that's the really tricky part. The way that they're presented is in a way that is seemingly innocuous. And until you've been in the situation where you need to access care, then it's hard to make that judgment about uh, when someone should have been able to show up. We know that lots of women have all kinds of issues in, in their lives and even medical issues that may delay their ability to even identify that they're pregnant in the first place. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if you're already of dealing with maybe something like PCOS, right? So women who don't ovulate very regularly may not get a regular period. By the time you recognize you're pregnant, then you're always already maybe well into the first trimester. And so again, just thinking about all of the things that it takes to be able to get in to get care. We know that majority, the vast majority of states are unfavorable for abortion access. And so what if you don't have a provider in your state? then you're traveling across state lines. Most individuals who have abortions already are parents. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you're finding childcare for your children. Often you're working at a low-wage job, and so you're having to take off work. You have to find transportation. All of these things contribute to an individual's ability to get in and get care. And when we think about all of the other barriers that have been put in place, the trap laws, the gestational age bans, they do exactly what they're designed to do, and that's eliminate access to abortion care. Absolutely. I mean, you're seeing on top of that waiting periods, so yes. now you have to make multiple trips and find childcare multiple times and make that drive or find transportation multiple times. And that's another thing that can, you know, push off. That's a great example. And, and the, um, the disrespect that is contained in the waiting period laws to me is something that's amazing as if the individual presenting for the abortion doesn't already know what they're there for. So we want to send you home and wait for one day or in most egregious cases, three days um, before you can come back and make your decision. So how many barriers can we put in place to eliminate access to this care? I mean, it just feels so patronizing like absolutely little women go home and you know think about it before you make this you know big decision assuming that people haven't thought about it and already made their decision before they made the appointment I agree and I really believe you know I've been providing this care for a long time and I really believe that the women that I take care of are capable of making thoughtful decisions about their lives and their families without the influence uh, and of those who think they know better. 
Um, okay, so we talked a little bit about the the one of the reasons they say for twenty week ban is uh, women's health, trying to preserve women's health. I feel like another justification I hear is uh, fetal pain. Do you maybe want to tackle um, a little bit about why that's not the science is against that as well? It's simply just untrue. There's a lot of evidence out there that that proves that this is something that is completely made up. And that's one of the dangerous things about having those who are not medical experts making laws that overstep medical boundaries. So those of us who provide this care, those of us who've done the research, those of us who are familiar with the research, medical experts know that this fetal pain is not, it's not a thing. It's something that's completely made up and is proven not to be true. I mean, I feel like it goes into this just much larger story of just an attack on science. Absolutely. You see arguments saying that, you know, IUDs cause abortion or, you know, the morning after pill is abortion or all of these things that are just not true and attacking the basic understanding of what we know. And and it's really frustrating for scientists. Yeah, right? who have been doing this research, for who've been dedicating our lives to being able to support, to find evidence to support the work that we do, and so to have someone come in and just make up what they what they want to fit their bill is frustrating to say the least. Well, now you think about the women who are hearing this, and you know, find find this an extra stressor at a time when they're already probably pretty stressed about. What's going on, you know, whether that's trying to arrange the childcare or just trying to make time and jump through all these hurdles to add this extra stressor on top of it. And the point really is is to shame and stigmatize the individual who's making this decision, this decision that they have thought about that is best for them, that's best for their family. They've made it in consultation with their health care provider, often their partner, uh, if their partner's involved, and other support people. And so it's a really just adding another layer of shame and stigma to say, look at this, look at what you are doing. Um, so maybe we want to talk about a little bit about um, why women are seeking abortion at 20 weeks. I know it's complicated, but maybe um, I think some people just don't understand why it could be that late. I'll give you a really good example. I saw a patient not too long ago that had come into the office, and she um, had was pregnant, and when she first presented for her, her prenatal appointment, she was already about 13 or 14 weeks. She was someone who was very much like the, uh, had the medical problem that I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. So she didn't have regular periods. She didn't know that she was pregnant. But this was a pregnancy that she did desire. And when she went in for a prenatal appointment, everything was going fine. At about 18 to 19 weeks is when you get an ultrasound. And typically that's the ultrasound that we use to tell you, are you having a girl or a boy? Right. But this ultrasound found that the the baby that she was carrying really had some abnormalities. And these abnormalities were not compatible with life. And that meant that should she carry the baby to term, if she was able to carry the pregnancy to term, then it certainly would not survive the delivery. And so she made the decision to terminate the pregnancy. And so for someone like her who had presented late to care, Mm -hmm. um, later than um, those who were judging the situation presumed she should have, Right. right? But absolutely normal in the case of the medical condition that she had, and then found out later in the pregnancy during her ultrasound appointment that this was an abnormal, although desired pregnancy. And so that's one good reason. But there are lots of other reasons. There are barriers that are put in place, and we talked about that. So um, Texas is a really great example of where we see this 
but Texas isn't the only one. We also see it in Ohio and Pennsylvania and and Florida and Virginia. So lots of laws that are out there that really create barriers. So imagine if you present, you you know that you don't want to carry this pregnancy to term, and we talked about all the other things that come up, whether it's child care or being able to to find an abortion provider in your city, much less your state. So you're traveling across state lines. So there are lots of reasons, some that are medical reasons that cause women to present um, later in their pregnancy and other logistical reasons um, that are circumstances of an individual's life or put in place by these laws that are passed. We have women worrying about saving up money for an abortion. And, you know, if that takes a little while, then all of a sudden they're later in their pregnancy and the price just went up because it's, they can't get a medication abortion. Now they need to get a surgical abortion and then they have to save more money and you have a waiting period and just all of these things interact to make it so much more complicated. It definitely is the case. And we've, we've seen the access to medication abortion improve following the change in the the FDA regulations. But prior to that, in places like Arizona and Texas, where anti-choice folks really um, seized on to the opportunity to limit access, they went after medication abortion in that way. Mm -hmm. And allowing individuals to get access to care earlier in the way that fits them best um, is one way to decrease the likelihood that someone does have to deal with all of the concerns that come along with trying to find a provider um, after the first trimester. You know, we talked a lot about some of the uh, different abortion restrictions that can cause uh, a delay for 20 weeks, but is there anything else that we need to kind of think about that would, would push that and just how women are making this choice? One thing that really can inhibit an, in, an individual's ability to get access to care is a lack of providers. So lots of the laws that we've seen pass really are going after providers like me, people who have committed themselves to providing care for women in a safe and compassionate way. So legislation that limits training of abortion providers, whether it's in medical school or residency programs, that limits the ability of providers to get admitting privileges to hospitals where they're practicing. So going directly after abortion providers is another really underhanded way that we see this legislation being pushed. So, you know, I didn't grow up um, thinking that I was going to be an abortion provider. I I knew I was going to be a doctor. I was one of those really obnoxious kids that (laughs) sort of walked around with the plastic stethoscope and the fake doctor's bag. Uh And so I always planned on going to medical school. And when I was an undergrad, I began volunteering at a Planned Parenthood. And that was my early exposure to compassionate reproductive health care provision. And it changed the course of my career because I thought, wow, this is something that's amazing. This is care that individuals need, and it's being done in a way that is holistic and respectful. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I'm going to commit myself to doing. And so when we see legislation that limits access to training for medical students and residents, and then also advanced practice clinicians, right? So nurse practitioners and midwives and PAs and all of those individuals who are passionate about providing comprehensive reproductive health care, because that's what abortion care is. It's health care. It's comprehensive reproductive health care. And so eliminating the opportunity to be exposed to that training in medical school and then limiting the opportunity opportunity for providers who want to be able to provide this service from being able to, whether it's in their institution or their 
office or their state is another really dangerous and underhanded way that we see abortion being attacked in the United States. Yeah, so I'm from Wisconsin, I think I mentioned, and this is something you're seeing right now with the state interfering on how the University of Wisconsin, they're, I think, blocking them from working with Planned Parenthood and letting residents go there for any training. Mm -hmm. Again, that just makes it harder. So closing clinics, but now blocking training of people that could provide those services, and that's going to create a problem further down the road. Absolutely. And can you imagine any other profession where the the politicians would come in and say, you can't learn how to do this part no. of your work? Right? This is something that is absolutely unique to women's health care and specifically targeted on reproductive health care and rights. And I think another thing you mentioned, we're just kind of getting into a little bit of the trap laws where we talked about, you know, transfer agreements or admitting privileges. Again, these are things that I think when the average layperson hears it, they don't sound uh, horrible. They sound like maybe reasonable things to do because people don't necessarily understand yes. uh, how complicated that is. Hospitals just don't give everybody admitting privileges. It's a business. They need to bring them um business and abortion so safe that you're not sending people to the hospital. Exactly. And if you live in a state that is hostile to abortion care, then you won't get admitting privileges. Right. We acknowledge that you don't need them as an abortion provider because it's so safe and you we don't have complications to the same degree that people who are doing other outpatient case, cases may. But if you live in some place like Mississippi and we saw this with uh, with Dr. Parker in the clinic in Mississippi and denial of admitting privileges because you are an abortion provider, then then even there's even less of a likelihood that you'll be able to get um, the licensure that you need and be able to provide the care for women in the state or city that you practice in. I mean, and these laws are really targeted at forcing the clinics to close, and they've been very successful. That is the point. That is absolutely the point. And so, and that's why it's important, I think, that we, we say that loudly and as often as possible. This is not about preserving the safety of the women that I take care of. This is absolutely about removing the access to legal and safe abortion for women in this country. Absolutely. And you've seen the effects. You've seen, what are we at, three states now that only have one clinic, um, other states that are getting very small. I think I've seen what is it, we're at 20 some states where more than 50% of the women in the state live in a county without an abortion provider. It's Absolutely. very hard for women to access this care. It is. It's very difficult. And we and for, for those of us who are committed to providing this care, we're worried about this. How can we continue to take care of people? We know there's a lot of evidence from, from countries around the world that looks at what happens when abortion is restricted, what happens when abortion is legal. Abortion is very safe in this country because it is legal. We can, you can ban abortion. You can make it illegal, but it's not going to stop. You'll stop safe abortion Absolutely. and women will die. Absolutely. And that's the bottom line. It is. And, and, and you know, it's frustrating for me um, who, who's taken an oath to care for people to see legislative interference in my exam room, someone coming in and things like forced speech that we yeah. see in lots of states and not just for speech in general, but just flat out lies 
things that are not supported by medical evidence, forcing healthcare providers to lie to their patients about complications and risks that don't exist or are not associated with abortion. And so the legislative interference just through both the laws that are passed and then also the mandates that come down that get in between me and my patients is really frustrating and, and awfully disrespectful. I'm just trying to think of any other medical specialty where you see a politician all of a sudden in the exam room with the doctor getting between that relationship. The only other one that only other place that occurs is with the gun lobby. And so they have eliminated the ability for physicians to screen for guns in the home. So those are the two places that we see it most. That's crazy. Yes. (laughs) Yes, it is. And for pediatricians in particular, because it's part of our screening. All right. Part of the screening for providers. Do you have a gun in your home? And so the difference there, of course, is they're not forced to tell their patients, oh, guns are safe. There's nothing that you need to worry about. Leave your gun unlocked, right? The lies Mm -hmm. that are being forced um, to be told to women around their reproductive health is is a huge difference there. And you really see it, the stark difference in, it really depends on where you live. And that is just kind of, again, that's just really unsettling to think that, okay, so I decide to live in Alabama, and that all of a sudden that means I can't access this care as easily as somebody who lives in California. Absolutely. It's justice by geography. Yeah. So your access is limited depending on your zip code, and even in California, depending on your socioeconomic status. Yeah, absolutely. And so for those places that are on the coast that are blue states and seemingly liberal, we also still see lots of limits. Here in Washington, D.C., we see limited access to care, even though it's the nation's capital, even though it's a state that is favorable and liberal and progressive, sort of all of the, the catchphrases mm-hmm. that we use to, to describe ourselves, we see that there are huge disparities in the care that individuals are able to obtain overall, and abortion care is no different. So organizations like um, Planned Parenthood and Whole Women's Health and and other organizations that really seek to support the community um, are really critical to providing a safety net for reproductive health care overall and specifically for abortion care. I mean, you see that disparity to access to reproductive health really playing out in the maternal mortality rates. And you see that black women have such a higher, what was it, Three times is that the most recent number I saw? It's Which I mean it's astronomical, unreal. astronomical. And here in DC, our maternal mortality rate yeah. is two t- twice the national average, right? So the disparities are really significant, and unsafe abortion absolutely contributes to that. And it's not race that's making the difference when we're thinking about maternal mortality. Mm-hmm. It's racism and health disparities and economic inequality, right? All of the things that ensure that you don't have access to the health care that you need, that you don't, you aren't able to see a quality provider, that limit your ability to get effective contraception that, that of your choosing. All of those things contribute to reproductive health disparities, and we see it in abortion care as well. Okay, so one other thing we uh, should touch on. So we talked about a 20-week ban. One of the things you are seeing has passed in a couple states um, and also was being considered in the House of Representatives is a so-called heartbeat ban. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what those are? Another ban on abortion at any gestational age. And so if we can't get it, get you later, then we'll certainly get you earlier. Mm-hmm. And that really is the plan. Any arbitrary ban 
on abortion based on gestational age or really anything else does nothing to um, to improve the safety of the care that we provide. And it is solely designed to limit access to safe and legal abortion in the United States. Absolutely. And we talked a bit about you know, being able to figure out that you're pregnant early on and how how difficult that is for lots of individuals. And so by um, setting this gestational age with these bands, it means that it eliminates access almost universally. Absolutely. You have to have missed a period and then get your abortion. So many women maybe don't know or Absolutely. in denial or wouldn't have had time to think about what they would want to do at that point. It would be so quick. It is. It is. And and we know that abortion is safe. We know that women are making thoughtful decisions. We know that individuals have complicated lives. And so coming in and putting in any kind of ar- arbitrary gestational age ban, whether it's at six weeks or 16 weeks, is unreasonable. So again, these are all just the myriad of ways that uh, Roe has been under is under attack and will continue to be under attack particularly under this current environment. Absolutely. It's a slow chipping away at reproductive rights. And that is the point. Okay. So now that people know about some of the many ways that uh, abortion rights are being attacked in the U.S., what are some of the things that people can do to get involved and make a difference? The most important thing I would say, or one of the most important things, is to contact your legislator. Let your voice be heard. It matters. It matters for your senator or your congressman or your um, those in your, your state and federal offices for you to reach out and say, listen, I am a constituent and I do not support this. I want you to vote this way. So whether it's organized letter writing or calling your legislator, then absolutely take this personally. You should, mm-hmm. because this is the beginning of a really aggressive attack. And we're, you know, we, we think that, wow, we're, we're neck deep, deep in it already, but we have not seen anything yet. This is definitely going to continue. So the louder we shout, the more we make our voices heard, the more critical it is for us to be able to push back on these attacks. The other thing that I would say is to tell your story. Storytelling has become a huge part of um, advocacy efforts overall. And organizations like Advocates for Youth, who does the One in Three campaign, and Shout Your Abortion, and lots of other people that are saying, listen, you can't push us to the sidelines. One in four women will have an abortion in their lifetime. So this is somebody that you know. Mm-hmm. And so being able to speak up and push back on that shame and stigma lets legislators know that you will not be silenced, we will not be silenced, and we want them to vote in line with their constituents. Absolutely. And I think you made a really great point. It's calling your representatives, not just federally, but calling your state representatives. Because, you know, when I talked about that 401 new abortion Mm -hmm. restrictions have been passed since 2011, those are state level restrictions. So the calls to your state representatives is so important. It's critical because, again, if we go back to the Roe versus Wade legislation, that's federal legislation. Mm -hmm. And so we can't get that. What else can we do? And so we go for the state level restrictions, admitting privileges laws come down at the state levels. Trap laws come down at the state level. So going in and contacting 
contacting your state representatives are really critical to say, we will not accept, we will not accept this. And so both for patients and then also for providers, I think it's easy for us to stay in our offices and to see our patients and to say, you know, wow, this is really terrible. I can't believe what they're doing. But organizations like Physicians for Reproductive Health has a Voices of Courage campaign, for example, where providers are speaking up and we're saying, this is who we are, this is what we do, and this is why. It helps connect individuals to the stories that are out there and put a face on the numbers. So what does it mean to say that one in four women have an abortion in their lifetime? Who are these women and what do they look like? What are their experiences like? So being able to connect individuals both on the on the state level and a, on a policy level, and also to public le- on a public level. So individuals to stories is really critical to making sure that we can rally the support that we need to make sure that abortion stays safe and legal. I think stories have been one of the great things that have come out of this real attack on reproductive health recently is not just the individual stories, but the provider stories mm-hmm. and really seeing everybody speak up and add their voice and telling what their abortion story is, what Uh, their patients have gone through. And I think there's just something so powerful in that. Absolutely. It's hard to ignore a person, right? It's it's easy to fall in to the rhetoric, but that rhetoric is so far from the reality of the lives that individuals lead that it's really dangerous and it's allowing this legislation to move forward. Well, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Parrott. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. For more information, including show notes from this episode and previous episodes, please visit our website at reprosefightback.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at reprosefightback. If you like our show, please help others find it by sharing it with your friends and subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on iTunes. Thanks for listening.